I think it's my turn. I, I'm not sure. I, but uh, it's really great to be here with you. If For those of you who don't know, I'm Glenn Matlock. Um, I am not one of the pastors here. I, I've served here uh, for quite some time, for 13 years now. I've uh, preached uh, a number of times, you know, to fill in here and there. So exciting times, um, filling in again this morning. And uh, it's great to be with you on this uh, spring Sunday, right after Easter. Uh, earlier this week, I was talking with my grandpa, and it's, it's kind of awesome to talk to him because he's such an inspiration. He just celebrated his 97th birthday, and that's just amazing. But he told me he just loves the spring. He loves this time of year um, because it's green and beautiful. I like it, too, because it's, it's not too hot and it's not too cold. Uh, everything starts to turn green. I guess my only complaint would be that my grass grows faster than I can keep up with the mowing. So uh, I don't know about you, but uh, it's almost more than weekly these days. So, um, But it's also that time of year, though, when a lot of people try to revive their gardens, revive their lawns, do those projects around the house. That's probably why we call it spring cleaning. And that's fitting for this series, Flipped. Uh, that's probably what we think of when we think of these days when we hear the ter- term flipped. We think of a, a house that's really broken down, that's in major need of some TLC, and taking that house and restoring it with creativity, with our imagination, and of course with our sweat equity. And then we flip it over for a profit. Of course, we may be so in love with the changes that we've made that we want to keep that for ourselves. Now, there's a big industry that is tailored around home improvement. And in fact, there's a channel on cable TV called HGTV that's just dedicated to home restoration, home improvement. And when we think of celebrities who've become famous for restoring houses or reimagining homes, we think of couples like Chip and Joanna Gaines from their, their show, Fixer Upper. And then there's the, uh, the whole franchise that uh, Flip or Flop, which is spun off into several different varieties from the original to uh, Flip or Flop Atlanta, Flip or Flop Vegas, and so on and so forth. Um, maybe one day there'll be a Flip or Flop Walla Walla. But um, while that might be interesting, that's not exactly what our series Flipped is going to be about. In fact, we're actually going to be discussing the kingdom of God. And when you hear that, the kingdom of God, it's honestly one of those really churchy type of phrases. I mean, let's face it. If that was the title of this series, you you wouldn't have been as intrigued. And it certainly wouldn't have made for these uh, pretty postcards and the the pretty graphics that we've we've made for this series. And, And that's probably because it's church. It's Bible talk. It's like talking about being born again whatever that means, right? And in fact, we're going to be talking about that also this morning. So lucky for you, we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God and being born again. But we're only going to be able to scratch the surface of this topic of the kingdom of God. Literally hundreds of books have been written throughout history about the kingdom of God. And rightly so, because Jesus taught on this more than he taught on anything else during his ministry On the earth. And if we look in the Bible, the kingdom of God, that term appears 67 times in the New Testament. 52 of those 
occur in the four Gospels that record Jesus' own words. And if you were to take all the variants of those, that term, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, and kingdom, you have over a hundred instances of that phrase used in the four Gospels that record Jesus' word alone. There's several other references in the Old Testament to the kingdom of God, but we're going to be focusing during this series solely on Jesus' teachings about what the kingdom of God is. And that's fitting, because after Easter, coming on the heels of Easter, which commemorates this important and pivotal day, I would argue for all of human history, but certainly for Christianity, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you were here last Sunday for Easter, not only did you get treated to free donuts, but you also heard Pastor Chris talk about Jesus and resurrection. Only the resurrection he was focusing on wasn't Jesus' own resurrection. It was the raising of his dear friend Lazarus, who had been dead for four days and then was miraculously raised back to life. And maybe that's why, even if kingdom of God is not something we understand, we want to be in it because of the promise it holds for us, for those who have followed Jesus, to have eternal life as well, just as Jesus rose from the dead to eternal life, and then was able to raise somebody else who had been long dead back to life. But what does that mean exactly, the kingdom of God? And it's one of those terms that churchgoers will will recognize, they hear it a lot, maybe we sing about it, but how many of us know what that means exactly? You know, it raises more questions than it answers. I mean, our trouble with understanding that word, or that phrase, kingdom of God, comes from that word kingdom. Because when we think of kingdoms, we think of castles, and we think of knights, and we think of kings and queens, and we think of Lancelot and Guinevere and King Arthur and the knights of the round table. But beyond that, we get a little fuzzy trying to remember our history classes. Because how many times today do you hear the word kingdom used in the news? But the problem is, Jesus was referring to the ruling powers of his day. Today, we would understand that to be nations or countries or republics, if you will. So then, what is God's kingdom? And while we're at it, what is the difference then between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? And we'll put that to rest right here and right now. There are some students of the Bible who think that there's a difference between the two, but most of them agree that they're synonymous, that they're used interchangeably. And meaning, when you hear kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven or just kingdom, they mean the same thing. But every time that Jesus is teaching, he'll use a phrase, and he'll say something like, the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he'll talk about it. And each time he talks about it, he took the common understanding of the day, and he totally flipped it upside down, and totally changed the way that people were thinking about things. So what is the biblical meaning of kingdom? We're going to do a little bit of setup here because we're going to be talking about this over the next four weeks. This will be the technical part, but it'll be the end. It'll last about three minutes and we'll be done. You're happy about that, right? But what is the biblical meaning of the word kingdom? Is it Israel? Could that be it? I mean, after all, weren't they God's chosen people? Didn't he promise to bless all peoples through Israel? So wouldn't they be 
the kingdom of God? But wait a minute. Now, Christ came and died for the sins of the world, and which means if he did that and we have put our faith in Jesus, then wouldn't the church then be the kingdom of God? Isn't that it? Isn't the church the kingdom of God now that we believe in Jesus and now we enter into the kingdom of God? Oh, but wait. Is the kingdom of God earthly? Is it earthly? Is it something that we would relate to here on earth? Now, Jesus and, and the Bible talked about a new heaven and a new earth. So would it be earthly? Well, none. wait a minute. Now I'm really confused because no heaven and a new earth, and you also said there's a, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. So would that make the kingdom of God heaven? Shouldn't be he- heaven be the kingdom of God? But that sounds really exclusive, doesn't it? Because it's just the people in heaven that get to be in the kingdom of God? Didn't Jesus die for the entire world? Shouldn't we have a more global or universal view of the kingdom of God? Wouldn't that mean that the world is the kingdom of God? Well, the answer to all of those is, yeah, not exactly. You see, each of these have elements that are highly related to the kingdom of God. I mean, Israel? Sure. The church? Definitely. Earthly? You bet. Heavenly? (laughs) You better believe it. The world? Okay. Yes. But that's not all there is to the kingdom of God. You see, we're talking about God. We're talking about the one. The one who created everything that we see and beyond. So his kingdom, his nation, it's so much bigger And it may help us to clarify by using the term kingdom. What we really mean is where we would find the king, his stomping grounds, where he lives, his address. And if that follows, that means that the kingdom of God is literally everywhere because we're talking about God. So if it helps our modern ears, we could think of it as God's country or his estate or his address. We could think of it as Casa Jesus, or She Yahweh, or if we're using the Urban Dictionary, God's crib. Because after all, isn't the master of his house the king of his own castle? Okay, now we're back to kingdom again. But anyway, getting back to the idea of kingdom, what is in a kingdom? Well, from a technical standpoint, you have to have the ruler... That's the king or the queen. And then you have to have the people. Those are the king or queen's subjects. Okay? The people. And you have to have a place, right? The territory of the kingdom. The location of where the kingdom is. And then you have to have a system. The economy. The society. The law. So in the kingdom of God, and specifically uh, with God, he is the king. Jesus is the king because he is God. Revelation 11.5 tells us that the kingdoms of this world would become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So he's the king. He's the ruler. Okay? And the place, well, we talked about that. That's everywhere he is, right? Because he's everywhere, and the kingdom is everywhere he is, which includes the earth and the earth to come and heaven 
and everything that we see. And the system of this kingdom is what it's like to live there. So that begs a question, the one that we're all thinking about. What about the people? Who are the people in the kingdom of God? And that's what we're going to be really focusing on over the next four weeks, because that's what we really care about, isn't it? We want to know about what, it's, what are about the people? What are the people like in the kingdom of God? And if we were to take all Jesus' ideas about the people in the kingdom of God and distill it into one sentence, it would be, there is something new for all of us to be part of, and it's coming soon. There's something new for all of us to be a part of, and it's coming soon. In fact, that statement is going to be our setup for the next four weeks. We're going to talk about an element of that statement each week. And it's going to focus on that thing that we care about most. Who are the king's subjects? Who are the people in the kingdom of God? And we're going to be focusing this morning on the something new portion of that set-up sentence. It actually relates to this question that's on all of our minds. We, we ask the question, who are the king's subjects? Who are God's people? And if the kingdom of God is truly where he lives, his address, so to speak, how do we get there? How do we get to live in God's crib? And that question has literally dominated all of theology and religious thought forever. The question, how do we get to God? How do we experience the presence, the nirvana, the ultimate joy of being in the presence of the one, the one who created the universe and all that we see, the one who is the fulfillment of all the purposes and meanings for our existence? How do we get to that God. And that question even dominated the thoughts of the people who lived during that time, the Jews, who Jesus originally appeared to. But the difference was they thought they had that all figured out. They thought they had the answer to that question. Because for them, the kingdom of God was what we now think of as Israel, the Jewish nation. And they believed that a Messiah, which was someone who would come from God, would come down from God and be their king. And he would come and establish his kingdom on the earth. And he would rule from their city in Jerusalem. So they would be, have a front row seat to, to Jesus or God and his kingdom, the Messiah and his kingdom. They believed that he would come and liberate them from being under the control and domination of Caesar and Rome. And they, the Jews, would become the privileged subjects, the, the privileged people in this new kingdom. Now, as a matter of fact, when Jesus did come to earth, he was very clear and he revealed exactly who he is. And he is that Messiah. He is the one that God sent to make all right with the world and to inaugurate his kingdom, the kingdom of God. But he wasn't what they expected at all. You see, they were looking for a Jewish version of Dwayne the Rock Johnson or John Cena to come in on this prize stallion and have a sword that when he pulled it out of its sheath, it would just blind everybody with its reflection. And he would come and he would take control back from the Romans and he would give it back to the Jews and he would establish his own kingdom right there in Jerusalem. 
But when Jesus came to earth, he corrected this. And the scripture tells us in Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of heaven does not come with your careful observation. Nor will people say, well, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. And what trips us up is that second to last word there, within you. It doesn't mean that the kingdom of God is literally inside you, because the original Greek word there is called entos, and it means among you, or in the midst of you. And in fact, if you were reading that translation in a different Bible, for instance, the ESV would say, among you, or in the midst of you. What Jesus was saying then was that the kingdom has already come, but you didn't see it. It's me. I'm the one. But you were looking for the wrong things. And he goes on in this same passage to tell his closest followers, the disciples, that the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. In other words, Jesus came along and he flipped this understanding of what the kingdom of God would be like. And he also flipped the understanding of what God's purposes were for the world and for all of us. And as we'll see this morning, he also flipped the common understanding of what it would take to gain admittance into the kingdom of God and answer that question, how do we get to God? And Jesus, he answers this in a very unusual way. He didn't have this conversation in a stadium or on a major stage or an arena or even a cathedral or a synagogue, but he has it on the rooftop of an ordinary house in Jerusalem. And this was the scene where Nicodemus came to secretly meet with Jesus. It is here where some of the most famous words that Jesus ever spoke are recorded. And it's found in John chapter 3. And that's our text this morning. So if you'll join me in your Bible, if you have your Bible or you have a a device that you could look this up with, uh, it's John chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 16. That's John chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. I think it's also on the screen there, if if you can read that. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs that you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying that you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. 
You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, Nicodemus was a prominent man in Jerusalem at the time. He sat on this ruling court known as the Sanhedrin, and he was a famous teacher in Jerusalem. This means that he was in elite standing among the most devout and orthodox Jews. And he's pointed, he notes that due to these signs and miracles that Jesus is performing, he has to be from God. He can't be just an ordinary man. But we can't help but notice that he's not on official Pharisee business because he came at night. And students of the Bible have have noted that he came at night because he didn't want to be seen by everybody else. Because he was a member of this class called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had already decided that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. He was a troublemaker. He wasn't God. He wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't from God. He was just a mere troublemaker. And they thought this because he didn't fit with what they imagined God would be like if he were to come to earth. He didn't fit their expectation. And before Nicodemus and Jesus could get into their philosophical debate, Jesus cuts right to the chase. He says that unless a person has been born again, they're not going to get into the kingdom of God. They can't get into God's crib. Now that phrase, born again, It's just plain weird. (laughs) It's weird. And we're not the first ones to think that. In fact, Nicodemus thought so too. And we see that he coined that famous comeback. Do you really mean that you have to go back into your mother's womb and actually be born again? So if you thought that was a clever comeback, you're not the first one, okay? Because Nicodemus, he, he, he got credit for that. But Jesus explains that he wasn't referring to natural childbirth. He was referring to spiritual birth, one that originates from heaven rather than from earth. And the original word that was used there in the Greek, we translate that as again, so we get the word words born again. But it's also translated born from above, which would imply a spiritual rebirth. So not born again, but born from above. But we're not the only ones confused because it's clear from the passage that Nicodemus thought he was talking about again too because he said, how can a man be born again when he's old? But Jesus explains that he's referring to this spiritual birth from above, from God. And if that's confusing, don't miss this point, okay? Because it doesn't matter how you slice it, whether it's physical, spiritual, you know, born of water and spirit. Wow, I don't understand all that stuff. Jesus is really saying this. He's saying it's impossible to be born again. You can't do it. It's impossible 
therefore, to get to God, to achieve salvation apart from the supernatural. Because to be made right with God would literally be as impossible as being born again. It cannot be done. That is, unless God somehow intervenes and miraculously regenerates us, which is exactly what Jesus said that he came to do. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that brings us to the big idea for this morning and for your notes if you're following along. It's impossible for us to get to God. We can't get there by anything that we can do. It requires what only Jesus Christ can do, and he offers it to us freely through faith. You see, it's impossible for us on our own to get to God. We can't get there by anything that we can do. It requires what only Jesus Christ can do, and he offers it to us freely through faith. And this isn't the only place in the Bible where this shows up. Jesus taught in Matthew 5.20 that unless our goodness and our good deeds went way beyond that of the most elite, respected, and noble people of the day, i.e. those Pharisees, then we would not enter the kingdom of God. The translation there is clear as well. It's impossible for us to do this on our own. We need a miracle. And the good news is, he offers that miracle to us. And to break that down even further, and if you're following along in your notes, the first point here is that all of us must be changed. All of us must be changed. You see, Jesus says no one can see the kingdom of God unless he or she is born again. And this rebirth, it's that birth from above, it's a regeneration, a renovation, if you will, that occurs in every part of us, so much so that the difference that it makes in us, it's almost like we're born again. And Jesus, essentially, is making us forever new. And he's making us perfect and perfectly acceptable to God. And this pertains to everyone. That's why I put all, meaning capital A-L-L, regardless of who we are. Because Jesus, he came along and he flipped this idea on Nicodemus that if you were a good Jew and you were in good standing as a Jew, then you were good to go. You didn't have to change. Well, Jesus came along and said, not so. Everyone, Nicodemus and the Pharisees included, must be changed. And that leads us to the next point, which is that all must go through Jesus. All must go through Jesus. Jesus told Nicodemus that no one enters the kingdom of God without being born from above through the power of the Holy Spirit and by looking to his sacrifice on the cross. In the passage, he says that the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him, he's referring to his future death on the cross. And it's by looking at at his death on the cross that saves us. Likewise, he would later tell his disciples in John 14, 6, that I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's because Jesus is God. Only he can do the impossible by changing us so that we're acceptable 
to get into God's crib, to get into his kingdom. He flips this belief that if one of us leads a good life, we can gain acceptance with God. And how that happens, that leads us to the last point that we've got here. All rely on grace through faith. All rely on grace through faith. Jesus, in this famous passage, John 3.16, he says, whoever believes shall have eternal life. That literally means anyone. Anyone can gain admittance into the kingdom of God, regardless of who they are or who they've been. And that's really good news for all of us. Because you see, what we don't see is that at the time, it was understood that this salvation that Jesus would bring would be just for the Jews. And if you were a non-Jew, well, too bad for you. You didn't get in. But Jesus comes along and he flips that understanding as well because he doesn't use a qualifier saying that any Jew who believes, he says, whoever believes shall have eternal life. And not only that, we don't even have to have any moral standing with God. We don't have to have a status. We don't have to earn anything or deserve it at all. We simply need to believe and trust in him. And that's why Paul, the apostle, would later write in Ephesians 2.8, it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So, Glenn, how is that something new? (laughs) Really, is that it? How is that something new? It sounds like basic stuff to me. But by calling it basic, we're paying quite an insult to old Nicodemus because Jesus pointed out, hey, you are Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things. And here's something to think about. Nicodemus didn't walk up the stairs to that rooftop and think, you know what, my salvation is in jeopardy. He didn't walk up those stairs and say, I wonder how I'm going to get to God. Because he thought he had it all figured out. In fact, he had it made in the shade. And if anyone was going to be, quote-unquote, saved, it would be someone like him. He didn't walk up there thinking, hey, I really need to answer the question, how do I get to God? He figured he'd already done it. But he changed his tune after his conversation with Jesus. And for that matter, we never see Jesus tell a group of people in the Bible, hey, what I'm about to say... It's for them, but you guys, you're good to go. We both know that you're good to go. You know, this is for them, not for you. No, whenever he's talking about how to enter the kingdom of God, he's talking to everyone, everyone. Paul writes in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. In other words, we need to take a good look at ourselves and ask, how is it that we're getting to God? Are we trying to do this by being a good person, by living a good life? Or is our response awe over the fact that Jesus has given us this miracle of free grace that God has worked out in our lives? Or are we still striving to to be good and to do good? You see, the danger is that we might miss this even now, just as the Pharisees did. And it might be helpful 
for us to be a little bit countercultural here and say, you know, when, whenever we read about Pharisees in the Bible, replace that phrase with regular churchgoers. Because when Jesus spoke these famous words about how to get to God, he was talking to a man who thought he had it all figured out. In that world, Nicodemus had this formula for getting to God, and he'd already done everything he needed to do to get there. You do all the right things. You say all the right things. You hang out with all the right people. And then you're good to go. Likewise, we who identify ourselves as followers of Jesus, we may begin to fool ourselves into thinking that this same formula applies. And I'm, I'm telling you this, not because you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to you know, teach you something that uh, you know, is counterintuitive to what you've already learned. I'm a pastor's son. I grew up in the church since I can remember. I went to Christian school for 13 years before I ever went to college. And I know this is a problem for me. Because in that kind of lifestyle, you, you begin to think to yourself that, you know, if you just do the right things and you say the right things and you hang out with the right people, well, there you go. You're good to go. So I definitely know how you might fool yourself into thinking that by doing those right things, by saying those right things, by hanging out with the right people, we're going to get to God. You may have been born into a Christian home, gone to Sunday school, youth group all your life, and you may have done all the, the right things and said all the right words when you were supposed to say them and gone through all those major milestones. But if Jesus were here and he were going to have a private conversation with one of us at the upper level of the olive or out there at the coffee corner, I think his conversation would be similar to that of his conversation with Nicodemus. He'd be saying the, the same things. He would flip our idea of making our own way to God and fooling ourselves into thinking that we can earn our way into heaven, earn our way into the kingdom of God by living a good life, by punching the right tickets. And if that's what we're doing, we're in danger. You see, it's impossible to get to God without God himself. Only he can get us there, and only what he has done matters. But what stands in our way? It's pride. It's our pride. You see, the Bible tells us that God created us in his image. But we have a tendency to come along and create God into our own image. We fashion his kingdom into what we think it ought to be. And we bend it to match our vision, our needs, our desires, and our lifestyles. That's why, even if this does sound basic, this isn't easy. And I want to list a few things that get in our way. You've got those in your notes. And there is a typo, I have to admit that, in in the, the note, and it's my fault. But the first, it's my reliance on what I have. My reliance on what I have. This is our stuff. You know, there's that famous saying that the person with the most toys at the end of the game wins. And, and we hear about in ancient Egypt how rulers would have themselves buried with all their possessions, even sometimes with their servants and their family still living, sealed in the tomb with them, because they figured they were going to take it with them when they go. 
But we know that's not true. The saying is also true that you can't take it with you when you go. But many of us still hang on to our possessions. We hang on to our stuff. So much so that our stuff, meaning our money, our houses, our things, our families even, they have us rather than us having them. And what we accumulate or earn in this lifestyle or in in this lifetime, it's not the measure of what we deserve. Jesus flips that idea on its head because instead of striving, constantly striving, he says, surrender, surrender. I don't know about you, but this is a hard one for me. You're always striving to be better and to do better and to get more stuff. It, it, it seems to be the measure of what you deserve and what you can earn. But he says, surrender. And I know this is difficult. It's difficult. But ultimately, it's liberating. It's liberating. Because let's face it, navigating in the world today is tough as it is. Isn't it easier to just stop striving and just surrender and for the person who doesn't have much (laughs) this is welcome news because the good news is you don't need anything because jesus is more than enough now another thing that can get in the way is my reliance on what i know my reliance on what i know now for some of us This is actually our knowledge of the Bible and of theology and Christianity that gets in our way. Because maybe we grew up in a tradition that emphasized living a good life and not sinning. So we can't accept how we could ever get our way to God without somehow deserving it, without earning it. Or maybe we know this stuff so well. (laughs) We trick ourselves into believing that our depth of knowledge had sealed the deal with God, that our intellectual understanding has somehow made us right with Jesus. But Jesus, he takes that and he flips it over. And he says that it's not our pedigree. It's not that depth of knowledge that we have. It's simple faith. Perhaps for others, we have just the opposite problem. Our understanding of science, history, philosophy, it keeps us from accepting that God even exists. But if he did exist, how could you ever be made into something that was in his good graces just because of, you know, grace? How could you do that? You'd have to earn it. But you don't have to have any special knowledge. You don't have to read a special book. You don't have to complete a Bible class to have the smallest shred of faith that it requires for God to accept you. And the last point there is that what gets in our way, and this is the big one. This is the big one, I think, for a lot of us. And it's my reliance on what I have done. It's my reliance on what I have done. And maybe this is the biggest one for most of us to to get right in our minds and to reconcile. You know, it's been said that Christians are some of the most guilt-ridden people on the planet. And that's because for so many of us, getting to God has been a measure of behavior management. We study the Bible and then we take it and turn it into a list of to-dos and to-don'ts. And many of us literally kill ourselves trying to do good and be good, striving to measure up 
to live a good life. And there's nothing wrong with doing good things. There's nothing wrong with achieving great things. But Jesus makes it clear that that doesn't get us to God. And again, he flips that idea over. He says, instead of doing good works, it's just grace. It's grace. That means that it's a gift. And by definition, a gift cannot be earned. It can only be accepted. Now, for some, we're saying we have just the opposite problem. I can't imagine how I could ever be forgiven for all the terrible things that I have done. We can't imagine how God would ever let us into his crib or his kingdom knowing about our past and what we've done. But there's no sin and no past that we could ever have that cannot be overcome by his grace. You see, all of these issues were hang-ups for Nicodemus. He had status, he had pedigree, and he had done great things. And I hate to admit it, but these are all hang-ups for me too. They're struggles for me too, and I suspect for some of you as well. But none of these get us any closer to being in the kingdom of God. We access the kingdom of God through simple faith by accepting this free gift of grace. And when we do that, that becomes the ultimate flip where tradition becomes transformation. You see, being born again, it really means being transformed. And through this transformation, we gain admittance into the kingdom of God. We get our way to God through this transformation. Now, you'll notice this morning in your notes, I've left blanks beside each of these three issues. What I have, what I know, what I have done. And I'm not going to give you the answers to those because they're for you. They're not mine, they're yours. And what I would like you to do is to identify for one of those or two of those or even for all three. What is it that you have been hanging on to? Now, maybe this isn't jeopardizing your relationship with God. Maybe you, you have accepted God and His free grace, but still you keep on living in a way that says you're not saved by grace, that you're, you're still trying to earn it. That's still baggage that you're hanging on to that you don't need to hang on to anymore. What is it that you have? What stuff do you have that you're trading away for trust in Jesus? What special knowledge do you have that's getting in between you and him? What is it that you've learned about the Bible or religion? Is it your background? Is it the way you were brought up? And what things have you done or accomplished? What noble things have you done that you assume have placed you in good standing with God? And perhaps it's just the opposite of these things. Maybe it is that you don't have much or you have doubts about all this. Or there are things that you've done that you're ashamed of, things that you could think could never be forgiven. None of these things can get in the way of Jesus and what he has done for us. That's bigger than anything that could hold us back. So consider that your homework. You could do it right here and right now, fill that out, or you could take it with you. Think about it this week. And I challenge you this week to identify what is it that's hanging you up 
What baggage is it that you're hanging on to that might be preventing you from that simple faith that it takes to let Jesus get you to the finish line, to get to God and to enter into his kingdom? Now, if you've already accepted Jesus as your Savior and you've relied on him, then, you know, you, you are in the kingdom of God. You're a member of the kingdom of God. But here's what I don't want to do. I want to take for granted that there might be someone here, even someone who has been going to church for as long as they can remember, who's done all the right things and said all the right things and hung out with even some of the right people, but still hasn't personally surrendered and relied upon Jesus. Because doing and saying the right things, it's not enough. And I'm not going to do an altar call. We're not going to single anybody out this morning. But if you're here this morning and you want to simply just surrender, stop striving and surrender, and by faith accept this gift of grace so that you can also be transformed, then I encourage you to do that this morning. And if you want to talk with someone about that, I'd be happy to do that in between services. You can find me, come and can ask me about that. But I also know how scary that can be. So maybe you want to talk to someone else that's less scary. Or maybe you don't want to talk to somebody in person at all. And I understand that too. I want to be sensitive to that. So I'm going to do something completely crazy. I'm going to give you my cell phone number. And if, if you want to chat, just send me a text. That way, you know, you don't have to be singled out or walk up to me in front of people. You just want to ask a question. And there it is, 509-540-9280. 509-540-9280. I'm going to trust that you're not going to put me on a mailing list to, to get more calls from Elizabeth at the Reward Center. But um, I, if you want to talk, just send me a text. I'd be happy to do that. And if short of that, if you want to fill out on your blue connection card later as we take the offering, hey, I want to talk to someone. It doesn't have to be Glenn. It could be Chris. It could be someone. Just put that on there and put that in the offering. But let me leave us all with this thought. Every one of us has to evaluate his or her own salvation. We do that by really doing business with the baggage that we're hanging on to. Because remember, it's impossible for us to get to God by ourselves. We need what only Jesus can do. Have we received what he has freely offered us through faith? If not, what is it that's stopping us? Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you for this truth that you have given to us. We thank you, Lord that you are very clear in, in teaching us. We thank you, Lord, that we can read this word and we, we look back on this. Maybe not in the same context that Nicodemus had. In fact, we, we have your word at its full content and disposal to us, but yet we still struggle sometimes to get this right, and that's our human nature, the human nature that comes along and tries to create you in our own image, that tries to fashion what we think you ought to be like into what, you think you, what we think you ought to be like. Lord, help us, Lord, to simply rely on you, to stop striving and killing ourselves, trying to do good and be good, to make our way to heaven, and simply surrender. 
And instead of trying to, to reconcile everything that we know and we don't know, just to simply have faith. And Lord, instead of trying to do all this stuff to, to make our way and earn our way, to accept your free gift of grace, that you might transform us and make us fit to enter into your kingdom. We thank you for this. We give you all the praise. And in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray, amen.